0: I see so many of you leaning forward, and you all got it. (laughs) Hi, everyone. So here we are. So imagine a person in a canoe peacefully, rowing down a river, being carried partly by the current, partly rowing in a relaxed way. It's peaceful, it's a beautiful day. They like to get somewhere, but they have all the time in the world. Maybe it's important to get there, but there seems to be lots of time. And then it occurs to them for some unusual reason. They've they've heard that anchors keep boats boats safe. They don't quite know what an anchor is for, but they heard it keeps it safe. They go, maybe I wanna make sure I'm safe now in my canoe. So they take this small anchor and they drop it off the edge of the boat and hits the bottom of the river. And then the boat doesn't go so fast anymore. It's kind of like dragging along the bottom, doesn't catch anywhere, but drags along. And they've noticed they have to to start rowing harder now. It's hard work. And it doesn't both business as responsive as before. And person begins wondering what the anchor is supposed to keep us be safe. Maybe I should use the bigger anchor. So they throw the second anchor over the even bigger one. But this one's so heavy that the boat, the canoe stops in the river. And no matter how hard the person rows, paddles, the canoe doesn't go. And then the person looks at their clock and says, wait a minute, I have to get somewhere, this is important. I'm stuck, I guess I ran into danger. But these anchors are for, keeps boats safe. Let's throw in the biggest one. So there's a huge anchor and they throw it in and now they're really stuck there. But then there's a flash flood up river, and the water comes suddenly pouring down the river. And the boat won't go anywhere. So the water just kind of goes around and up and over and capsizes the boat and everything is a disaster. Luckily the person can swim. Sometimes the anchors that slow us down, the wind drag, sometimes they slow us down, sometimes they stop us, and sometimes they just stop us so thoroughly that we just get submerged in the floods of life. The anchor has to do with what can be called me, myself, and I. With ideas connected to self. And I said that very carefully ideas connected to self, as opposed to saying the anchor of the problem is the self. It's ideas connected to it. And this idea of ideas is quite important because they're projections that we put on top of reality. Sometimes they're accurate enough, but we relate to them sometimes as anchors, as wind drag. They slow us down, they hold us back. They make us susceptible to the floods that come along. These three things uh, in constancy, these three insights in constancy, suffering, and, um, now today, not self. They are known that the the, the the name that all three have is the three characteristics. And when something is a characteristic, it's the characteristic of of something. It's not a thing itself. It's just the characterizes things, an attribute of things. And so when the Buddha taught this teaching of not self, not self is an attribute of things. And he's not positing, he's not saying directly there is no self. The Buddha actually discouraged people from believing that there is no self. He called it a quagmire, kind of a, uh, that you get stuck in. And so even this idea of self that there is no self, that's still an idea about the self, that also can function as an anchor that holds us back from flowing along in the river of life freely. So how does this work? A lot of uh, ideas of self are social in nature. We learn them from the people around us, from society. They only become relevant sometimes when we're with people or thinking about ourselves in relationship to others. You might have toenail that has fungus on it, kind of all a little bit, you know, misshapen and ugly looking or something. It doesn't hurt. doesn't cause you any personal difficulty. So as long as you're alone, you don't think about it. It's not a problem. But when you're in public, you never go barefoot. You never go with sandals without socks. Heaven forbid they see you with that toenail. Now suddenly you're a pariah. Now suddenly you're... There's, you know, fear of total rejection by your friends and everyone. And so this idea that I, you know, that, that I have this defect of a fungal toenail, it partly exists socially. What do other people what do other people think? And, and then we solidify around that what other people think and what they'll do and, or it could be the opposite, like you have the most beautiful toenails the world has ever seen. And you spelled, spent a fortune to make it so. And you don't really care when you're alone, but boy, will you care when you're out and about. you always go with sandals with that, without socks. And you always kind of like have your feet sticking out in such a way that, you know, they better notice. So now you're the beautiful toenail person. That's so great until someone else comes along. Here's one, Mrs. Mr. Toenail 2022. Oh no. This person won the contest for best toenails, not me. And then it's depressing. And a whole world of self gets built up around these toenails, whether they're defective or perfect or whatever they are. It's just another anchor. It's wind drag, It slows us down, it keeps us from flowing freely in life without and just staying in the present moment. And one of the values of this meditation practice that we do is as we arrive and are able to stay more and more in the present moment, more and more aware of the present moment unfolding of our life and our experience, we start noticing um, how we get distracted from that. We, we get pulled into thoughts, maybe of tomorrow or yesterday, and when we see, oh, I'm no longer in the present moment. I see how that game is played. I see how I start having toenail thoughts. And the more I think about my toenails and what people will think of me, I I see clearly I've lost connection to the present moment unfolding of my experience. I'm now in this world of stories of toenail stories. And the more still and concentrated and, and, uh, and settled you become in meditation, the more that's a reference point for the subtlest little movements out of that present moment experience. And that is part of the function of this meditation is to so we can see clearly in a way, it's very hard to see in ordinary life, how we move into these places where we have thrown the anchor over the side of our canoe. Little places where we get held on, get stuck. We're out of the stream of the present moment. And now we're stuck someplace on a shoal, someplace, maybe. the the Toenail shoal. And um, the, um, so, It's normal as we settle into practice to start seeing that certain kinds of preoccupations with self don't aren't really satisfying anymore. Don't really it kind of diminishes us in certain way. It takes us away from the fullness and the peacefulness and the immediacy of this present moment experience that this practice gives. And it's a vantage point to Understand something about the nature of the distraction and the idea formation of self that's very hard to understand in ordinary life as we go about. And so, when the Buddhist teachings of not self are best understood in this kind of, you know, I think for many people, this is where they first begin getting an inkling of what we're saying. To take an ordinary street consciousness, come off the street and hear a teaching about not self. There's no, it doesn't relate, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it's just so counterintuitive and and people will protest or get angry or something. But with a settled, quiet mind, it's so clear that what you lose when you, wander off into those thoughts about self. How it's actually, we lose, in a certain conventional sense, the use of the language, we lose touch with ourselves the more we concerned about ourselves. And to see how that works because we see how the thinking about self takes us away from our real, who we are and what's that, how, how we are is unfolding in the present moment. And we start seeing that I'm better off not thinking about myself. I don't have to solve my self problem in this kind of context of the meditation. I just stop thinking about it. That was a lot easier than solving my self problem. It seems like in deep meditation, you get to see you have a choice. Do you go off into the self problem and think about it? and lose touch with yourself? Or do you stay in the flow, which is so much more satisfying? In ordinary street consciousness, people will have manifestos about the importance of their identity and who they are and have to prove who they are and everyone should know it and they're going to defend it. And some of that is completely appropriate. Some of it is, some of it maybe is overdone and We have to be wise about it, but the context of deep meditation offers a very different orientation understanding because the purpose of this deep meditation is help us to become free, help us to lift up the anchors so we're not held back, not limited, so we don't set ourselves up to be uh, washed over by the floods that come. So in uh, English, there's a kind of a expression, me, myself, and mine. These are three ways in which people get caught up in this notion of self. In Pali, the ancient language of teachings of the Buddha, they had the same three categories, but they put them in a different order. And I don't know if that's, that's important, but the order in Pali is um, <clears throat> mine, me, myself mine me myself so and uh, i think that the the logic of the polyorder is that it goes kind of like from the outside the coarsest to the most inner most refined because mine is just my possessions you know both my physical possessions but also my toenails also my beliefs my opinions Anything that you can say is mine. It's a little bit kind of more surfacy. <clears throat> Myself is a deeper kind of feeling for who I am. You know, kind of just oriented in this direction towards this self here. But the self is the philosophical self, is the metaphysical self. The idea that there's something essential, enduring, Essence of self, somehow of a soul or of something that is permanent or everlasting, or you know, so that's where who I really, really, really am is that core seed of self or something. <clears throat> For the Buddha, maybe because he was a meditator. He, he he became acutely aware that all of these three movements of taking things as me, as orienting around myself, and, some <clears throat> and uh, taking something as the essential metaphysical self, were all recipes for some kind of suffering, some kind of stress. And I think the best kind of reference point for what he's talking about is what I've talked about just now that in, the, the, in this real concentrated, still subtle place of meditation, you see that doing this is a drag, getting involved in those thoughts, those ideas. And I don't know, I keep saying deep meditation, but I don't think you have to be that deep. <clears throat> I think that uh, to see some of it, the coarser aspects of it, I think five days into a retreat, I, I suspect that there's some notions of self that arose, arise for you. And you'll just say, not now. You know, you, I, I just, I'm finally quiet. And I don't need to think about that now. It's that to do so, take something away. I lose something. So things that you take as mine. One of my favorite stories, little Dharma stories about mine <clears throat> was told to, me about my, told to me by a friend who was there at the time with this teacher in San Francisco called Suzuki Roshi. He was, uh, I think it was the last year of his life. And there's a photograph of him saying what he's saying. And, um, and he's leaning, he has his glasses and he has the glasses a little bit in front of his face and he's leaning forward and he said, these glasses are not my glasses, but you let me use them. I love that little story. Conventionally, it was his glasses. But he wasn't living in a world where he was claiming this is mine. I think it was an easier, lighter, freer world for him to not hold on these are my glasses. experience that uh, can be quite upsetting here at IMC is to have chosen your seat here for the meditation session. All settled and just so happy, but then you you realize you have to go pee and there's just enough time to go pee before the session starts. So you go to your pee and when you come back, someone's sitting in my seat, my seat. Somehow this movement that this is mine. It happens unconsciously. The person hadn't thought about this is mine, but it suddenly became my seat and there's a whole war going on inside of me about indignation and how could this person do it. As opposed to saying, oh. They let me sit on that seat before that was nice. Now I wonder where they'll let me sit now. And the suffering of taking the seat is mine. A seat which a week later, you only remember where you sat. So this appropriation, making things mine. I remember I was doing on on a retreat and I was doing walking meditation in the hallway. And this person started on the other end, walking in my path, my little back and forth path. And I thought certainly the person's gonna walk around and go on, moving on. But no, the person was staying. And this is my walking place. Come on, what's going on, Is mine. And I had a whole inner fire going on. Did I need to? Was it necessary to have that fire? It was necessary to take it as mine? Was it necessary to hold on to something that way? And if you say yes, it was necessary, then I have to kind of be willing to suffer with all my upsetness and anger at this person. What would you rather do? Be angry and possessive or be peaceful and not claim things as me, myself and mine? When I teach um, my Intro to Meditation class, I do a little exercise, which I'll do for you now. Okay? And that is that um, I'll hold up a flower, like I'm holding up this flower. Hopefully you can see it well enough. If, if I'm on speaker view, maybe you can see the flower. And um, And in Zen, there's a whole famous story about a monk who holds up a flower at the time of the Buddha. And the monk smiles and the Buddha affirms that he's fully enlightened. So, so the question is, what is it about holding up a flower that can be so significant, so effective? So we have here the suchness of a flower, the flower just in and of itself as a flower. Maybe beautiful, but it's just a flower itself. Maybe that's why he got enlightened because he just allowed it to be itself. But now watch this. I can take this flower and put it next to it. And now we can say something we couldn't say before. Now the first flower is the small flower and the new flower is the big flower. So that's interesting. But now watch uh, the magic right in front of your eyes. You'll even see how the the magic is done. So this is the small flower, right? This is the big one. So you have to kind of look, look kind of closely now. And now look. Now the flower that was the small one is now the big one. Isn't that pretty cool? Magic. Where does big and small live? Big and small lives in the comparisons we make. How, tremendous amount of human suffering arises because of comparisons. That somehow we don't we don't measure up to someone else, or the suffering of conceit. You know, I'm the best. I'm better than all the other people. If I told you I was like, I'm super hot shot basketball player. Boy, am I good. You better appreciate me as a hot shot basketball playing Dharma teacher. The wise thing to do is say, well, who do you play with? Oh, I play with the eight year olds down the street. Yeah. I tower over them, (laughs) you know, that's the reference point for me being a hotshot basketball player. So what are we comparing ourselves to? Are you comparing yourself to your siblings, to your friends, to ideals that I'm supposed to be this way, I'm supposed to be that way? when I was 13, some of you maybe, few of you might remember in 1967. And um, I had lived in Italy then for a while and I had the longest hair of any male in this town in Italy. Only one who wore blue jeans. I was cool, really cool. And I knew it, it was great to be the only long-haired blue jean person there because that was like so trendy. End of the summer, I moved to Los Angeles. You know, I kind of missed the summer of 67 in California. And I came back and all the guys, their hair was longer than mine. And I just had blue jeans. They had blue jeans they'd figured out how to bleach and tear and patch. and. And I was no longer cool. So my sense, my sense of who I was, and my my uh, uh, joy in life and joy in myself, was so dependent on who I was comparing myself to. That's a fragile way to live. That's a heavy anchor to f- carry around with you. I spent a lot of time that year in school, pulling on my hair, hoping it would grow faster. So I could catch up. So probably none of you, none of you are that ridiculous, but people do funny things and they suffer because of it. And it's not just that we do this, it's kind of a conspiracy. It's kind of a, it's done collectively as a society. And it's not like a virus we pick up and other people are doing it. And other people are judging us and relating to us because of how we are. And so we're trying to make ourselves safe and fit in. And then we buy into this whole game of comparative thinking and being a particular kind of self or proving ourselves. So painful. So there's mine, what I possess, make mine. There is myself that I compare myself to and make myself into or try to be. And then there's the kind of the core self, the essential self, the true self. And in the teachings of the Buddha, this teaching of not self, it's not no self, it's not self. It's that you realize as, the, as you get quieter and quieter in meditation, whatever you look at, whatever you touch and see and feel and know, in and of itself, that doesn't qualify as a true essential self. Sometimes the idea of a core self is an intuition. It's a kind of a vague feeling of some kind of center. But when the mind gets really quiet, really still, that center kind of disappears. And everything is just, it's clear that whatever you can experience has the attribute of not-self. That's not the self, that's not the self. Does that mean that there is a self? The Buddha never answered that question. I think he wasn't interested in that question. It was enough for him. The project, the, the path to becoming free, was to give up the movement to, to hold on to or to construct or to search for, to rely on any kind of self at all as a metaphysical self, as a philosophical kind of soul kind of thing. Should I wait until the honking horn stops or you don't hear it? You don't hear it, okay, it stopped anyway. When I lived uh, at the Zen center as a Zen student, they had a, um, you know, they had this big meditation hall. And in the meditation hall, there was a altar with a Buddha statue. And the way the hall was laid out was a long rectangle. And the altar was not up against the wall but it was away from the wall. So there was a corridor kind of walking space. You could walk behind it to get to the other side. And there was Buddha, the altar was positioned kind of at one end of the rectangle. And the rule was you were not supposed to cross in front of the Buddha to get to the other side. So you would have to go around the back of the altar to get to the other side. So there was I was that was a really fixed rule you don't cross that line, and as I was there I started I could feel myself I'd get close to that line and I start feeling like there was like maybe I'd get electrocuted or something It was like you know and I'd pull back I could feel like there was like a force field as I came closer to that line oh better not go there and uh and I lived that way for months you know that force field that I had to avoid and then one day I was uh Doing something in the meditation hall, cleaning it, I think. And these tourists came in. You know, people just wanted to see what a Zen center is like. They didn't know anything about that line. And they just walked in, like casual, like, like they were on the street. They just walked in and walked in front, walked past that line, walked in front of the altar, and, and lightning didn't strike, nothing happened. And the force field, like with a snap of the finger, That whole idea of a line and a force field and the danger of coming across it just vanished. It didn't exist. It was just a convention. It was just a rule. And my mind had constructed this whole force field there in relationship to it. Our minds are powerful, what it creates. And what could create so it feels like it's really real. That has force field, has power. It's like a present here for us. Our imagination makes them so many things seem like they're more real than real sometimes. And um, so we come to meditation and we sit quietly. And we start seeing the movements of the mind. The mind has, oh, there's a line. Line thoughts arise. There's a rule, rule thoughts arise. Fear about breaking the rule arises. Imagination of what might happen arises. And we see how the magic is made. We see these thoughts arise and pass and come into being. And we see them, they're just thoughts. And we can put a question mark next to them. Are they true? And in terms of that line in the meditation hall, it wasn't true in the sense that it was a reality. It was only true as a convention that people were following, some people were following. So part of sitting in this kind of Vipassana meditation is to start becoming wise about what we project, what we mind creates around me, myself and mine. And even to see that if it's accurate, the projection, the idea, accurate enough, it actually, Certainly in deep meditation is an anchor, is a wind drag, slows us down, limits us. Why would you want to? Well, the answer is because you're attached to it, perhaps. Because you think you need it for dear life. You won't manage without it. It's a betrayal to your history to not always be keeping it close by. So we start seeing these things, start seeing the projections, seeing the ideas that arise, seeing how important they are for us, start seeing how we're attached to them, how we're holding on to them. As we see them more clearly we start becoming wise. We see some of them as just being thoughts of possess possession, mine and how that's the, the attachment. Other times we see them as... Um, just ideas of who i am in some kind of conventional way and we can put a question mark next to them is this really necessary at this point do you have the freedom to pick up identities and put them down freely even identities which are you know accurate for you know in many ways Like some of you apparently are from New Zealand. You're, you're Kiwi, some of you, you, you refer to each other as Kiwi. And um, so that's an identity. It's kind of a nice one, I like it. <clears throat> but um, you don't have to be a Kiwi all the time, do you? every thought has to be like, I'm a Kiwi thought. You know, That you have to always remind yourself and, you know, someone says, you don't have to think about yourself as a Kiwi for a while. No, 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 it's so important, I'm really a Kiwi. (laughs) I hope that you can just, I hope that occasionally you don't think of yourself as, you know, that's not relevant, it's not part of the deal. It's like, it's forgotten, it's not, disappears for a little while. So these identities we can, as we become, we become freer and freer. Identities are something we pick up and we put down. We can pick them up when they're useful and hopefully not at other times. And we can put them down when they're no longer useful. And we know how to be free with them in relationship to them. We know how to, the freedom of being without them, the freedom of being able to choose to pick them up and put them down. And then this pursuit of the essential self, true self. When I was, um, sat a long retreat, once I, I went to my teacher and said to him, I see that every, I think I should become a Hindu rather than a Buddhist. Why is that? Well, I see that everything is impermanent. Everything is changing and inconstant, except consciousness. And I had heard that in some schools of Hinduism, consciousness was seen as being the absolute, the true self, the essence. And I just seemed like that was the case. And the teacher just kind of, he was pretty relaxed and easygoing about it. And he said, oh, just keep looking. (laughs) It's like a Vipassana teacher's equivalent to a therapist saying, well, how does that feel? (laughs) (laughs) just keep looking. It was good advice. And uh, just keep looking. And, And sure enough, at some point I saw that that too passed. Everything arises, everything that I could touch and feel and smell and it was all flowing, all in constant, all the stream of life. And why put down an anchor? Why get a bucket to pull out a bucket full of the river and then claim you have the river? Let the water flow, don't pull anything out. Don't limit it. Don't hold it back. Let it be free. So the hope that this talk hasn't stirred you up with protests. It's very common people protest teachings on not self. I hope this has not now gotten you you like swirling around to try to do what I just talked about. You know, Somehow look at every little identity and it's me, myself and my that you do. I hope this talk doesn't make you feel bad for doing it. Oh no, now I'm a Buddhist failure. Now I know even more. I didn't know I had these problems, but now I know I have more problems than I thought. Now I have this me, myself and my problem. I just thought I had bad toenails. What I hope at this talk is actually an encouragement to not be concerned about all this, me, myself, and mine, but rather to trust the practice, trust becoming quiet, a quieting of the thinking mind. Not an increasing thinking mind, trusting that as the time is right, when the time is right, it'll be revealed to you in the quiet of the mind, how this works. It'll be obvious to you that, oh, I'm doing that thing. I'm selfing, I'm identifying, I'm holding on to some idea of self. And it's so clear that I'm better off right now without it. That's what I'm hoping you'll see. And at relatively, you know, active, more active minds, you might see it in really big terms. As the mind gets quieter and quieter, you'll see it in small, more and more subtly more subtly. Let this talk be an encouragement to sit contentedly, quietly, peacefully, without having to throw out anchors. Be anything. Cut the anchor rope off. Let, your, let yourself just kind of go without the anchor. The canoe is actually safer, flowing in the river gently and being held back. And then as you start seeing how this works, It's not always easy, because so much of uh, how we orient our life is around this idea of self, identity, what's mine. That it actually sometimes a little bit frightening to not have it as an orientation, been with us for decades. It's how we make ourselves safe. And how can I be safe without it? So that's part of what we're working with, with compassion, with care, with, you can always pull back. You don't have to, there's no requirement to barrel ahead in this practice and push through what is difficult. There's a lot of value in just taking your time and go as far as you feel safe, you feel comfortable. Trust it. It'll unfold, it's onward leading, it'll, it'll take its time. There doesn't have to be any rush. And you'll learn more and more how it's so much safer and easier to not be caught in or preoccupied with ideas of me, myself and mine you'll become wise about how those work. And then you're, when you pick up me and myself, mine and myself, when you do involve these ideas, maybe you can do it when it's most helpful for people. Maybe you do it provisionally and, Maybe you do it almost like improv theater. It's useful, so you'll put it on. And and when it's not useful, you put it down, but you know what you're doing. It's just a different set of clothes you're putting on. And then you put it down. And in the end, You find that in your core, there's no need to own anything or be anybody or to have anything at the core that's other than freedom and vast space, vast clarity. May the insight into not-self free you from self-preoccupation so that you become a flower, just one flower, the suchness of the flower. That thusness of you, with no comparison, no before and after, no other flower, just you. Each of you, a beautiful flower in yourself. Thank you.